everyone. You're listening to our podcast, Land and People, where we interview people with ancestral and professional ties to the land. My name is Melissa Camara. I'm a conservationist and artist. And I'm Clay Charnick. I'm an extension faculty at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, working on ecosystems and, and fire in particular. And the views and opinions expressed on the show uh, don't reflect those of our employers or the employers of the folks that we interview. Again, we try to just keep this as a, an open open space to talk about about these relationships. And while we're at it, I would just encourage folks, if you like what we're doing, to please jump on the various platforms that you can get this and rate and review. We would love to hear feedback. It helps other people find uh, these stories as well. Yes, um, it does. So we've been doing, as you all have heard, those of you following our podcast, we've been doing a very deep dive into Maui after the fires, looking at the causes and conditions and effects of the catastrophes of the fires. Um, and also just hearing people's stories recently with Hank Oppenheimer last time. And today with an incredible guest, we just had the privilege of actually seeing in person. His name's Ke'aomoku Kapu. He is Kupuna out in West Maui. He's served many different roles. He has been close to the land and close to sort of the political aspect of land and water in Hawaii. But just as background, he served as the chair of the Maui Island Burial Council, the Maui County Council Resources Commission. He also served on the Native Hawaiian Historic Preservation Council. Council, West Pacific Regional Fisheries Management Council, and most recently, he was also in charge of the Na'akane Omaui Cultural Center in Lahaina, which did burn down. That's a whole other story. Um, yeah. Well, it was such an important opportunity for us to hear um, from Kaomoku. And I think what it speaks to in the sense of the Maui fire is, is that fire in particular, fires in general in Hawaii, and you can make this argument elsewhere in the world, they're more of a symptom of some of these structural problems that we as a society are, are struggling with. And I think that Kaomoku's story really points out how this is just explicitly connected and the work he's doing is explicitly connected to the work that he and his family were undertaking before the fire yeah. uh, and will continue to work on after the fire. And it's so much bigger than the catastrophe itself. It's really about mm -hmm. the disconnection between people and lands. Again, his work really speaks to how do we kind of reestablish this connection. As we're sitting during the interview at the edge of the golf course in Kanapali, you know, these verdant green lawns that are sort of manicured all around around us. Uh, it would just, the context was, was sort of so jarring where, whereas a few miles down the road, you just got the devastation uh, in yeah. Lahaina town. Yeah. And specifically we were in one of the hubs that he and his crew have been manning since a few days after the fire, handing out supplies, handing out food. It's pretty incredible. And when we talk about, when you hear, I'm just going to get political here already and just say it. Like when you hear people talk about decolonizing spaces, it can be, you know, metaphorical. In this space, it was actually physical. It was actually, yeah. they are occupying this place, not asking permission, but just doing it. And they're serving the community in West Maui, which is pretty incredible. And what's also really amazing about Kimoku is he's sort of the reluctant leader in the sense that <laughs> I'm sure he would rather be just growing his kalo, but he recognizes like so many of the leaders out in Lahaina that this struggle for land and water and just connection, physical, actual connection to place is so much bigger yeah. than one person. It's the same work, 
right? Like you're providing, you know, it's providing Kahlo or providing everything else that people need, right? This, this, yeah. the, the work, it parallels so it's so closely. And yeah, we would have much preferred to be interviewing him up on his farm. Um, but yeah. obviously given the context, this is where he, he needs to be and where we were able to, again, have the great fortune opportunity to be able to chat with him. There's one last thing I'll mention too, is that we do ask him specifically to sort of paint the picture of Malu Ulu Olele, you know, the groves of Ulu that once sort of were there out in Lahaina, as well as the fish pond, as well as the island that was there. We were really wanting to know what it was like back then. And he is a real advocate for the restoration of Muku'ula and, yep. you know, and all the rest. And and again, you know, speaks to the bigger picture of what Lahaina could be. And just this transition that we're capturing here is, you know, like his family goes out there in, in 1997, right? Oh, yeah. And so you're, you're capturing this transition where he was there right before uh, the plantations were abandoned, right? Yeah. Or he lived through this transition into this kind of the mess that we're dealing with now, right? This is like the ninth large fire or so that Lahaina's experienced since since 1999 when um, mm -hmm. Pioneer Mill shut down. And so, you know, here we're kind of seeing the worst possible outcome, but then the best possible response, right? As far yeah. as what you can see through this this whole mutual aid effort. Um, K.L. Moke is not the only one, obviously, but just a, being a part of um, the community on the ground, really stepping up uh, and providing for, for each other. So with that, I'll introduce our next guest, K.L. Moku Kapu of Kaula in Maui Komohana. Mahalo for taking the time. I feel almost bad for taking time away. We really did want to come and, and meet you in person. We were talking about wanting to know a little bit about you and your family. You know, on the ride over, we were thinking about the questions we wanted to ask you. But yeah, if you want to start how, you know, you're connected to to Lahaina, to Kaula Valley. First of all, to start off, my name is Kamoko Kapu. I'm the youngest of seven children from my, my father, Paul Kekai Kapu. And my mother, Barbara Pualokehao. From that upbringing, our, my life was part of a statistic of the state's housing poverty as I grew up. So my life was uh, subjected by what I said, the poverty level, which would be like Palolo Valley, uh, Merite Housing, KPD, and eventually Papakolea was where I was raised a majority of my life. Into my adulthood, my dad finally brought us home to Kaula. My father was born up in Kaula Valley from a hospital known as Pioneer Mill Hospital. My father was born in 1947, and his life was Abamahe'ai. He was a taro farmer from birth. Um, I would say from that time, probably maybe five generations from him was all taro farmers. So during the time of the constitutional monarchy, Kohabai Paiana, all the way to 1947 when my dad was exiled from Maui and sent to Lanai in 19, 1947, 48, about 1949, my father went into the military in the Marines, but I've learned a lot as the youngest in, in my family about the dire need of returning home because our life was subjected by, you know, the poverty level in the state of Hawaii where my father was exiled from Maui, that our life kind of went in a downslope. So understanding that my dad had a kuleana off of Aina from Kawaula Valley, my father one day said that we need to go home. 
And in 1990, well, 1981 was the first time he came home to visit his cousins. His cousins were living lower Kawaula Valley. Uh, went home to check up on, on the property. It was desolate. Nobody was living there. Pioneer Mill literally did a number on a lot of our Kuleana lands, Mauka. And my father just went home from 1980 and never came back until 1996. 1996, he brought me, my sister Kwailani, my brother Kalani, and said that we need to go home so I can show you basically what their responsibilities are. So we came home in 1996, walked up into the valley from Lahaina Luna, and kind of came out in a, like a moyao, a dream that my dad had to come home, and now was the time that he needed to do it. And the more, when I came home the first time, I was really infatuated in the lifestyle that I've never lived, but found out that a lot, my, a lot of my ohana not only traversed the mountain sides of Lahaina, but were very instrumental in a lot of the thousands of lo'ikalo taro patches that was up in Kaula Valley. So it made me more inquisitive and infatuated to return home and start to pick up a lot of the pieces that were left behind. Uh, one of the magical things that happened when my dad, I took him home after 60 years, he went in the bushes, came out with his poi palma. And it was like everything was frozen in time for him. And that kind of started the legacy of what was really important for us as Kuleana of, of Kawaula. Everything just blossomed from there, from that point on. My children now, today, hold that responsibility to Malamaraina. For myself, I just got kind of bombarded in the politics of life where I had to assert myself into the system to make sure that I talked about the things that mattered in the county, state, even in the federal level. So in order to save our resources of what we had and the ongoing pilikea that was happening with the land management of our aina, I embedded myself in the political system, yeah. in the Cultural Resources Commission for the County of Maui. Uh, later on, within the past three uh, three years from that, I also served on the um, Maui Lanai Island Barrel Council for eight years. For all of those years, I was the chair. From there, I served on the Native Hawaiian Shark Preservation Council. That's an advisory to the Board of Trustees. I did nine years with that. Um, I even served on West Pacific Regional Fisheries Management Council. It's a federal council yeah. as an advisory. And I just wanted to go home and plant kalo. <laughs> uh, it's not easy living this life knowing yeah. that our resources are subjected by some kind of high authority or rule. Right. right. And literally everything that I've learned about in the county level when we start talking about the preservation and protection of cultural sites, uh, anything that had to do it, they call it HRS 343. Uh, in the Barrow Council, you have Section 6E laws, and Hawaii Administrative Rule 13300. Uh, in the federal level, the Magnuson-Stevens Act, and it all boiled down to traditional customary practices. So by being embedded in all that politics, I kind of found some important bullet points where I can kind of address myself 
as a kamaka Maori, looking in a different lens and the political lens is where I found out that it's really important that we we dive into those things in order to do our traditional customary practices that deals with a lot of pertinent rights, pertinent easements, you know, and some people may say that, you know, especially our kanaka, they say, we don't like dealing with that kind of politics. We just like grow our taro in peace. But when you're dealing with a lot of the onslaught commercial industries and all these scientific terminologies on how they can make things efficiently better for, you know, agricultural growth and all these kinds, and you talk about R1 water versus all these kinds of madnesses that's going on, I was able to stay within the gap to make sure that my mana'o came from the traditional generational knowledge perspective. Because when you're dealing with a lot of these, these, I guess scientists call it really simplistic ideas on how things can grow a lot faster. And But, you know, one thing about my dad, he taught us the old way of what he learned. My father, he had a method and he never lost that. Mm-hmm. So before he passed away, he passed a lot of that EK or that knowledge to my son, myself, and I pass it to my son now. So it's just a kind of a generational knowledge, well, upbringing from one generation to the next. My dad, when he left Lahaina, uh, he left in 1947, and I never knew, you know, my father's life back then on how hard it was. Especially living in that time in Lahaina on how things are going too, too fast. And I'm, I'm really glad that I, I thought my father lost his native tongue until we brought him home. So when we brought him home, that innate ability of him understanding Maka'olelo Hawaii just automatically came back to him. Because he's on the aina, he's on the place uh, where, you know, his roots was. He was raised by kupuna of the past, which are no longer here today. I mean, my dad was raised by uh, his grandparents. And his grandparents was about in the 80s already. So my father had direct EKO knowledge and they call it hard knocks kind of lifestyle. Living with that Kubuna generation but not the Makua generation. When you're learning from a different era, man, you're learning hard knocks all the way. Keo Moku, can I ask you about that time period? Because, you know, we talk about it with others, you know, the kupuna in those days and their kupuna. It, Hawaiian was not spoken. It was not a part of, it was not the Renaissance. Was that your experience um, seeing your dad go from, you know, Honolulu, Kaula, and then all of a sudden it's sort of like un- unleashed in a sense? Or had he always been... Practicing and, and aware. Let's just say my dad was, um, uh, how would you say, reinstitutionalized. And, you know, being in the military, especially in the Marines, our life was hard knocks. Especially living in that time frame when my dad thought that the stars fly over my head. And every year I remember, he gave us a buzz cut before we went back to school. I think that was hereditary in a lot of families in Hawaii. That if your parents are part of the military, then you're going to be a military boy. (laughs) Yeah. And we all knew 
I mean, five boys in a family, everybody line up. You're going to get the buzz cut before you go back to school. <laughs> that was part of, I would say, maybe that settler colonialism kind of attitude that I was forced to live by. But it taught me some, some very important good lessons. Yeah. But the language came out when you moved back, yeah, is what you're saying. And, you know, did you grow up hearing it being spoken in the home? You know, like, how, how did you come to speak yourself? Only bits and parts. Uh, bits and pieces. Okay. Because my father, my, my father married one, one wahine from the mainland. My mother left when I guess I was a baby and my father remarried and my dad always wanted, wanted us to have better education so, you know, in my intermediate year, he moved all of us to Oregon. Oh, wow. wow. College Grove, Oregon. Wow. wow. That's different. And that's, that's not a city life. That's like a country, hick town, a lot of, a lot of rednecks and and that's a farmer's, it's kind of a mahi I Cottage Grove was like the capital of growing pears, apples, strawberries, the whole night, you know, grapes and all that kind of stuff. And um, my dad said, we're going to get you a better education. Went there and didn't work. <laughs> you can't take the Hawaiian from Hawaii. It must have been shocking. I can't, yeah. Can oh, shocking. Imagine. Yeah, big time. I think half my time being embedded in the school system over there, all I did was fight. Oh, wow. <laughs> man because it wasn't fitting for us i mean coming from hawaii and going to one place that's so desolate in the middle of the wilderness you know first time ever seeing snow and my attitude just basically changed I, I hated the place i did anything that i needed to do to piss my dad off so he said that's it i'm <laughs> done with you you're going home <laughs> yeah, that was my plan <laughs> Dude, done and done <laughs> yeah but you know, my father hoped for the best of us. Yeah. And uh, he was very upset because on my 11th grade year, I dropped out, dropped out of school. And I dropped out with only two and a half credits short. <laughs> so I was uh, the biggest disappointment of my, of my dad. But later on, my father understood why, because I got involved with a lot of people of, I mean, kupuna. So my whole life was like, I was always infatuated of hanging around with somebody that was like 20 or 30 years older than me because mm -hmm. That time I felt, you know, talking to people my age was, you know, I looked at people, a lot of my friends as being ignorant and that I, I've learned a lot of knowledge or ike from a lot of kupuna from Nanakuli, from all over the state of Hawaii. And I just got embedded in the way of how, you know, their life was back then, although they were subjected by military, but their lives on how, you know, whether it's lavaia, fishing, maiai, farming, that kind of interests me big time. So I really stuck, stuck to it. And my whole thing was about going, traveling different places like Canada, Alaska, New Zealand, all those places. Not until when I went to New Zealand, I really found the value of what it is, what it is and what it means to be Kanaka Maori, especially when it comes to feeding your village. Yeah. They have that strong protocol or code of conduct within them to say that if you're going to lead, you better know how to feed. And, well, everything we do today kind of resonates that. Been feeding the community, even when we 
did our first lo'ikalo up in the mountain. A lot of the majority of taro that we harvested went down to Nagasako store in Lahaina and we left the bag on the ground and tell people you can have. We put a sign on top and say, free kalo. But my father used to tell me, you gotta give in order to get back. So we, we gave unwavered every time we harvest and um, Nara Valley is even more flourishing, but the water is the big situation. So when you went back with your dad, what was the water like or not like in Kaula? Water was 100% diverted. 100%, so dry. Yeah. Can I just add to that if you get into the story a little bit because it's kind of just occurring to me now that you're there three years before the plantation shuts down. Yeah. Did you know that was happening at that time? But also just if you could talk about the changes you saw and whether that gave you hope about the ability to get water back or like what did you kind of, what were you guys anticipating those changes to be like? If you thought at all like it was going to be better for the farm or for the valley? Well, first of all, my dad said we got to go back before 1999. So 1999, at that time, I, I never know what, what that meant. Yeah, so 1979 was the adverse possession rule in legislation. Then they extended it to another 10 years, which would be uh, the 20-year adverse possession was 20, uh, 1999. Okay. So for some reason, my dad just said innately that, you know, our kubuna signed an agreement on a lease. We got to go home. So he knew, yeah, there was a time frame that we needed to get back to that. I know. So instead of waiting till 1999, we went 1996, 1997, I went in the mountains and I built our home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, 1998, when Pioneer Mill came and said that, you know, we need to discuss matters pertaining to basically what's going on with the water situation in Pioneer Mill at that time. So... That's when everything came political for me. Right. They knew we were going home. Our property was about four acres. And I told them that I want water coming from Pilani, Hawaii. The boss at that time for Pioneer Mill, he was the president. He went to the spigot, turned the spigot on, and he said, look how much water get coming from here. Maybe you can tap that for your dry land taro. And I said, you really don't know where I'm coming from. When I say I want water, I want water for the whole four acres of land that we have. And... You know, meeting with commitment schools, too, at the time where they didn't even know, actually, whether or not they owned any water rights in the area until um, I kind of woke them up to say that you need to go for your perpetual easement of water. You know, when, the, when people talk about liquor is for drinking and water is for fighting. Man, I deal with that every day. And why all of a sudden the so-called conglomerate purchases properties from Pioneer Mill, which ex- includes ditches, diversions, even our traditional Pilani Hawaii, you know, claiming that they own the rights to that. And learning more and more every year to say that when it comes to customary practices, that's on the top. And anything else, like commercial and all that, that's way down on the bottom. But then trying to figure out the state water code and the system on how are we being subjected, yeah, by a greater rule, which has nothing to do with our traditional customary practices. Sometimes you got to find out, you got to figure out how is that going to work? How you got to put your, your papers together? Like they say, we got to follow a water use permit application and uh, only X amount of water can be for domestic and surface water can be utilized for color cultivation, maintaining, you contributing back to, you know. Even though that right is put above all else, the way with the precedent set with the diversions, you're still like on like you have to go for it. It's not. You have to go after it. It should be. It should be the other way around, right? 
Yeah. So being a part of, you know, a lot of the commission that I sat on, you know, we get into a lot of arguments. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think people really understand traditional customary practices or when they, when they talk about TCP versus, you know, appurtenant and all these kinds of things. We're we always getting into like, like these kind of agreements or disagreements on what is when we start talking about what went happened back then versus what went happened today kind mm-hmm. of thing. Right. And I don't see no difference. Whatever we did 20, 30, 40 years ago, it still applies today totally. because the rules never change, right? But then people's mentality changed because of that, well, straight up settler colonialism. When you're looking at one palapala, you're subjected to whatever is writing, written on that palapala. I've, I've learned to be patient uh, with a lot of agitation. Because we're dealing with people who really don't understand what was the Kanavai back then and how the Kanavai was kind of incorporated in the system to make sure that our Kanavai applied, first of all, before the aliens came in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You're exactly right because the recognition of those rights goes all the way back. Yeah. The Mahele and land privatization. And so, yeah, again, here you are sort of should be on... Yeah, high priority. The highest priority there is. And I learned from a lot of guys. Jonathan sure is one. I mean, he's straight up. He knows uh, basically what the problems we face as Kanaka. Yeah. I think uh, what had been positive for me is, you know, we used to be always the defendant. Right. And being the defendant, even in the judiciary system, a lot of the judges, they don't understand a lot of that water codes and all that. When you start looking at today's water code versus the Kanawai of yesterday when you're talking about constitutional laws, international laws, they don't look at that. You know, in our system today, I tell everybody in the civil courts, it's either criminal or civil. That's all. But if you want to address land titles, then you should be in the land court. But they take it on in the civil court under an argument that somebody made a complaint on a certain individual which turns into either civil or criminal. Land is totally different. And we get subjected by fighting for one piece of property which has a boundary description of a tax map key versus the true model of the property when you start talking about land commission award, royal patents, native testimonies, and the native testimony talk about how many Pauku, how many Loikalo, how many Mala. Understanding, you know, just that alone when kind of open, open me up. It's this whole system. It's like the all the connectivity from yeah. one parcel to the next. Can't consider them independent. Yeah, everything is one piece. Even mm-hmm. when the Hawaii system, although the Hawaii may have been owned by, say, maybe the Konehiki or the Ali'i of that area, like Princess Ruth Kelly Kolani. She wrote she owned the whole Hawaii system and we were Kuleana that went up to the Hawaii system so within the laws of the Kanawai I've learned saying that each Kuleana needs to be subjected to be to taking care of each other right Mm -hmm. yeah in the water like if you get water flowing free on your property you gotta make sure that the whole Iwai gonna contribute to the next landowner or the right. next kuleana and the next kuleana down if not then the konehiki or the government would come inside and say okay you need to share the water or else we're, gonna, we're gonna extract land from you give them to the people that are suffering and that's gonna be like the, the manapai yeah so we, we had on system to make sure that everything was equal as soon as the mill company came in oh, that, that system 
some just went south. But come to find out that being involved in this litigation over 20 some odd years, for us, dealing with our our Kuliano, we found out that Pioneer Mill never owned the property. Yeah, when I read your story in the Civil Beat article, I was, it was, whoa. I was like, I cannot believe how this all went down and that you prevailed, which is really something incredible. A lot of people, even the Kubuna, they, they're not even around today. A lot of them we lost in this fire, we'll never see them again. But they used to remind me all the time, they say, one thing I like about you, boy, you stay consistent. Yeah. <laughs> you don't give up. Yeah. You keep pushing, you keep going. And when we came on with me, Mawahini, all my kids, and we literally left our pathetic lives behind. I mean, Nanakuli was great for us. It helped me groom my boys. Papagaleo was another area that, you know, I never going to forget. But as soon as we made the commitment to come home, this was it for us. We said there's no other place out there that we can go to. Yeah. Even though if we had the luxuries of today, I'm still subjected. It's like my dad took us into the mountains in the footprints of his past. Then he left and left us there. For me... And my family, it's a good thing. Because now we gotta learn how to survive on our own. And from that day till today, we're surviving. Yeah. But I mean, you're also, this is ironic saying this in the middle of this like distribution hub, but you're giving so much back. Even if this never happened, just setting this precedent and well, not even setting it because you're actually just maintaining, carrying on. Like like they were saying, you're carrying on that that forward. And that's where we're hoping to just talking with Jonathan, for example, and the explanation and really he phrases frames it so well this idea of the trust public trust and looking at water in that way that it, it is this responsibility for the water for all to benefit all like who gets to use it who gets access you know as we're surrounded by golf courses here it's no uh, oh yeah yeah wild this whole thing has just been wild it's wild yeah. right yeah and you know dealing with a lot of issues up in Mauka you know, people see our life totally different. Us, we live on the top, so we're looking down all the time. So we see the change coming. When people look from the bottom, they go up and go, oh, I wish I could have a house way up in those mountains. It's so large, so beautiful. But they don't know the politics behind it. In order to live that Makainama life in the mountains, that's a fight every day that people don't see, that we're subjected to. Even when now our system is stuck on a pressure valve, that in order for us guys to make sure that we're not going to run out of water, we got to file complaints and all these kinds of things. And For our listeners, just, just like tying into what you were saying, when you first moved back, it was 100% diverted and then... You went to court, got water, some water restored. And what is the percentage that you have now flowing into your lo'i? Would you say it's a lot or a little or not enough? Or what do you think? There's a lot of water, yeah. I think that because Komohana, which is the, the whole west side, was never a water management area. And I think that's the biggest problem because when the mill companies and private landowners took over 100% of the control of diverted waters from the mountains. There is never a voice in the community to, to kind of lift that up and tell the state to wake up and stop taking care of our resources because it seemed like the private sectors and the county 
was kind of married to each other. They were married to each other because the county didn't want to be subjected by the amount of water that they needed for development, especially when they start talking about we need affordable homes. That's always the buyout. When you talk about affordable homes, but don't even know the exact amount of water that we're getting. Yeah? So the designation needed to happen, and it needed to be on the Kuleana side. The Kuleanas is the one that made the argument to put in the in-stream flow standard. So we pushed hard for the in-stream flow, not realizing that the county was going totally against the wishes of the people. They never liked the state water, ma- the state managing the water resources on the west side because they couldn't get that free amenities from the private sector where in turn the private sector would give them open spaces for parks, you know, beachfront property right. for yeah. parks and all these kinds of things on a condition they get a rubber stamp to build more homes because the water coming from them. I, I had the mayor come visit me one time. I'm not going to mention his name. <laughs> but he comes in my building, Nye County, and he, he just barges his way in and he says, we got to talk. So I said, okay, what's what's bugging you, guy? He goes, you know why I don't want the, the state designation? Because of permitting. So I looked at him and I said, oh, I get it. So you don't want, yeah, to be stricken to an X amount of water, yeah, that the state can start regulating the amount of home that you're going to build. You have to come up with the exact amount of water you're going to use. And he tells me, no, that's not it. I go, well, it kind of sounds like you don't want to be transparent, that you rather work at the private sectors instead of having this figure out on a long term, yeah, the availability of water that we have. And he looked at me and he was like, you'll never understand where I'm coming from. You're too young. And he left. <laughs> but... Now, today, we have a different regime in, (laughs) and it's the same. The county's water use management is totally against state designation, yeah? But through the state designation saying that, well, you can only, now that is uh, ground and surface water management, now you got to figure out on two sides. And and when the Kuleana, Komohana, from Honokohau Valley all the way to Ukumihame, we all came together, we went by, and we said, you know, what we need this state water management area we need it now because of climate change because of drought system we need to know the total amount of water coming from these valleys so it will give us a good gauge on whether or not we can farm or whether or not homes or affordable homes gonna be more important than growing food what's so crazy to me because if you think about it, it's a constitutional designation ultimately whatever you want to say the law of the land you know and again legitimacy of that whatever way you want to go with it that's what you have to work with and I suppose I mean kind of a question but does the county could recognize that I mean if they were to but it's so it's not <laughs> like if the state provides the only mechanism to sort of assert those rights then yeah. what other you don't really, you're not really left with many options yeah we, we just didn't have a referee yeah, yeah a really better way to put it yeah bottom line is like every time I in fact back then was in 99 or 2000 no 2001 I filed my water use permit and I had one attorney his name was Richard McCarty and we looked at the water permit we got old maps and we was addressing saying that we wanted uh, traditional customary water for color cultivation we put all that together then when i submitted the permit with 125 dollar fee yeah for filing the state sent me the check back and said that because we're not a water management error we still gonna file this yeah under the state so the water use permit application because it's not a designated area doesn't go any place 
because there is no manage, managing entity, even under the county or even the private sector. So the state says, we're going to hold on to your application. Okay? As soon as all this came about, about in-stream flow, what's the first step, how much the amount of water coming out of the valley, so Ukumihame, 2 million gallons, uh, Olawalu, 2 million gallons, Launiopoko, they said, being only get like 380,000 gallons of water, we're not, gonna, we're not going to hinder the in-stream flow standard for Launiopoko. And we said, wait a minute, we're looking at perpetuating a lot of streams, even though if you only get 20,000 gallons of water there should be some kind of way where you can add water to that because of x amount of reasons fauna species you know those kind of things but 385,000 gallons of water for Lanya Poco can make them all the way down to the bottom then when it came to Kawaula well 3.34 million gallons of water that needed to be repatriated back into the river so I'm like yeah but then later on all of a sudden what three years later they never been contributing the landowner they rather pay the after the fact permit on fine in order for them to be subjected by the state's recommendation where now all those rich gentlemen in the states got to do a dual system. They used to have like separate uh, surface, separate groundwater, and now the state said being it's a state management of ground and surface, now all these rich gentlemen in the states got to do a dual system from the well. And they can no longer use surface water that was diverted from our river. Mm. And it gave us even one more gap on our life to figure out, okay, now we get the longevity of growing more cargo. Yeah. Now we can open up more fields. Exactly. Setting now it up be, for more people. Yeah, and now we can contribute even more back to the, the system. The water management area designation was one year ago, right? Was it what, about one year ago? And then the suspension happened. And, the, well, the fire happened. And yeah. The suspension and here we are so you're doing this incredible I mean we just have to say for our listeners we sh- this hub here in Ka'anapali is to paint the picture it is like unreal it's a city with so much resources for so many people that you know you're helping with uh, those who are displaced and, and affected and literally 30 feet that way is a uh, golf course, and we're very green. (laughs) So when we talk about water, we talk about fire. We're looking at sort of the contradiction right here. We're in the thick of it. Yeah. I mean, again, going back to Clay's question about how the work you did in water, how that ties into the work you're doing at the hubs during and after the fire, what would you, how do you think that feeds in? Our family had been persistent for years. And in front of the county, just like about a month ago, I, I reminded the county and said, this is the fifth fire we're dealing with. Yeah. yeah. All our other fires were in Mauka. 2018, all our homes burnt. Yeah. Over 23 homes, I think, burnt. All our family homes, all except for a few, survived. And that was the time for us when a lot of the community efforts came to support us. Mm-hmm. So Nai County, Omaui was the distribution center for a lot of people that were displaced back then and 21 families 23 families that's not much yeah but i remember standing in front of that podium telling the county that we gotta start sitting down because this is gonna happen again because of a lot of the lands that our mauka hasn't been abated you know a lot of the waterways have been diverted 100 percent diverted there is no pristine water and back then in 2018 found out that the county only had 23 percent of the water resources that came from komohana everything was all privately 
be owned. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the community come to support the Kuleana. 2023, now we are, commi- are committed to supporting the displaced families. And this area, you know, right after the fire, I had to get my attorney out and dropped her off in Maalaya. Then all of a sudden, we tried to come back in. The cops shut down the road. So me and my wife got stuck in Maalaya for two days. All in dire straits trying yeah. to get back Frantic. inside because we knew that we had to go into emergency mode. Totally. Soon as my cousin then was going in with one one caravan of supplies, food, she saw me standing on a side of the road and she says, Kiamoko, get in line. And you had military, you had police department. So I jumped in line. They just don't let everybody go. And then soon as we got back here, one night me and my wife was on the bypass looking into town and we slept up there. We slept on the bypass and place was dark. And I, I put a message out there on Facebook and told everybody that now is the time we gotta come together. That I was going to be looking for provisions to help feed and help clothe. And the next day, man, an army of people came. Gas, water, food. And I'm, I was stuck. Like, I don't know where we're going. So meet me at the post office. So we went to the post office <laughs> and we started the distribution hub. People was coming yeah. in, filling up gas. And, you know, we had gas trucks coming in for help. You know, a lot of our people then, I think like maybe three days after that, not realizing that they had on hub like about two blocks away. So we moved from there and we went to Walgreens, Lahaina. We just went moving and set up that big tent and everything was going good. Then the owners of Walgreens came and they looked at us like kind of scratching their head. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's why I told my boss of Walgreens, why well, it's better to occupy than to ask. And they contributed to us. They said, you can have the 40 foot container if you need it for supplies. You can set up everything. We, we 100% support you here. That's great. Yeah. Then we stayed at Walgreens and I was getting sick because we're ground zero. Smoke was still, you know, percolating in the area and I was getting respiratory problems. So after I think we were there for like maybe about two weeks, I told all my crew, we gotta go. We gotta get out of here. And the next morning, I made the call the car here on Facebook, over 200 people came and uh, we were able to move everything that you see over here in three hours. Wow. But a lot of the kupuna asked, how come, why you chose this area? <laughs> <laughs> so I told them, I don't know, but it's away from the area. The, the air is much cleaner here. I feel much better. The lele is over here. And that's kind of when click that the, the lele, the leaping point is right at Pukeka. Yeah, so we moved everything to an area that is traditionally customary customarily right because when you're dealing with the agitations of what's happening today not just feeding all the people that are living in the hotels but also catering to the lost souls that the kupuna will come to this place because that's the altar that's a lele that's a leaping area yeah. yeah and it didn't dawn on me at that time but when we did back in 1999 i think it was the rice kayatano case we burned that at mokoula and we walked the thoughts only to pukeka where 40 of my guys jumped off the cliff as a sacrifice sacrificial dive and keola lake kumu keola lake in his halau there to breathe life back into us and bring us back to shore it was kind of a mundane moment for a lot of us but thinking about what happened back then and what we're doing today like i mean to say i have any place to 
set up shop and to occupy this is actually pretty appropriate you know to bring something it's like what are we to what what's that serving versus what this serving that you couldn't really have it a starker contrast yeah like our pathetic life just continues on and on but you know what really matters a lot of people like to see this as an illusion because they came here to play golf yeah and then there's the reality of yeah now, yeah. now they're stuck looking at the real reality exactly a lot of them come and say what's what's going on they're like the whole world know what's going on here yeah and you know some of them they care the others they could care less what's been the most surprising thing since you set up over here anything any story any person i mean has there been you know interesting things that have happened i mean (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure that's like an understatement right (laughs) oh yeah i i getting visited from people all over the world all over the world i even getting visited with people who will try want to try to make a difference to correct a lot of the crimes that have happened in the past if you know what i'm talking about when it comes to land titles i get them i get them all and when they come when they start talking about royal captains and all this and sometimes you know people gotta really understand the situation i always tell them all right aina is agitated at this moment and now is not the time to be looking at title now is not the time to be looking at you know anything else that other than how our resources are impacted how our families are displaced you know all these kind of things people want to talk about has nothing to do with that yeah yeah so i guess maybe that's the reason why yeah i gotta kind of cocky everybody in the direction to say you know what why don't help us clean the town first then when we look at the long-term goals and objectives then Let's bring up the map and let's really jot down and talk about what's really important. Yeah, I mean, and I think our work too in fire is the same. It's like there's men, there's about 45 th- different things we could work on, but let's just focus on the yeah. things that are the most immediate, that'll be the most impactful, you know, as you, you know, are saying. Every meeting, we get like three, four meetings a day with the, with the Corps of Engineers. We get meetings with um, EPA, FEMA, you know, all that is like this is crazy so yeah. much and everybody is only immediately trying to figure out how we're going to clean up the town where we're going to put the debris you know my thing is you know we gotta we gotta heal this place not just get rid of the debris and that's another question where is it gonna go yeah i want to hear your thoughts about that because we heard some ideas yesterday from from folks do you do we know yet or it remains to be seen or you know like what do you think the state borderland and natural resources has a real huge pickle they gotta deal with right now Mm -hmm. and you know i mean don chang the director form she's gonna have to deal with a lot if it's not water man it's everything else but you know like for us we're thinking long term man so tonight i think we get the doctor coming again but all that little balls over there is all that genki balls we've been making you ever heard of the genki ball Use them in the Alawai Canal. Yeah. yeah. So I got like about 200 over there. Right on. And we're going to just keep making them and keep making them. And when they start agitating this place and all of a sudden the, our waterways, our mooly is going to be filled with all these toxins, 
I'm ready. You're ready to go. I'm going to drop all these inside the canal that goes into, I think, if anything, the state or the feds should actually look into some kind of something like this when you start talking about the EM1 calling like molecules and all that kind of stuff. We got to do that now. The remediation. Yeah. So I don't know is whether or not everybody's talking to each other because what I see, because we're taking on the, the monitoring role in town, there's a lot of people got different plans and nobody talking to each other. Now we're seeing it too. I mean, we obviously worked for a long, long time because most of the times it's the it's Malka that burns and that response and how limited we are to be able to like having materials, right, to do it. And right now, yeah, we, we're kind of in the thick of this of just crossing channels and, you know, people want to give, but they don't. I think a lot of folks don't understand where you guys are on the ground as far as whether you're ready to receive and what are those priorities, right? And in yeah. and, and that space, at least, everyone's like, we need to, you know, change the fuels. Like, of course, that needs to happen, but... But there's people that need to be taken care of. That's There's people first. Yeah. yeah. So once a second phase kicks in, that's when they can really... All my boys got to have all the Tyvek suits on. And in Lahaina, I mean, if it's 90, it's going to be 100 degrees in the suit. <sighs> Yeah, it's going to be intense. So a lot of things we got to really consider. I'm kind of the one got to make sure that my boys are has Whopper certified to make sure they can handle. But it's bigger than that. I mean, a lot of people are trying to get out, get in here because there's jobs. We got involved in this and had nothing to do with the kind, you know, what everybody thinks that you can make on fast buckle, you know. A lot of the people that manage all these areas as cultural observers and monitors, they're lineal descendant to this place. And, and I think that's the key because as soon as we got back... You know, we're running the distribution hub. That's all we were doing. Then all of a sudden, I got involved with this group. And this group was also involved. They call them the West Maui Community Aid. So they gave me a jacket. Yeah. So I looked at the jacket and it had a colony uh, emblem on it. I took the jacket off. <laughs> You're like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> Why? It kind of put a negative reaction on me. When I saw pictures on, like public media I was wearing his jacket and I'm like okay I look like the Red Cross oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah we're getting those same kind of inquiries too every other day we seem to be getting somebody who wants to send a team and I'm like I don't know who who, who are the these folks you know yeah. it's just it's coming from everywhere and I'm sure I can only imagine how much of that you folks get too yeah that's why our science is no camera no yeah. media yeah. and when we have Red Cross come I'm like the one can I help you yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're fine yeah, yeah I think yeah. Uh, you should go down to the next hotel maybe they might need you more over there I have a question and you know feel free to pass on this because it, it's not like overtly political but I'm just curious like really curious about this that given the fact that you know you guys are able to respond so quickly and so effectively but you know and and it i think there is this obviously huge distrust with the capacity of these agencies to to help and and what kind of assistance they're able to give but at the same time you you've also spent so long working within these systems navigating trying to figure it out i'm just wondering you know what you might say to folks as we move forward, the responsibility that we have kind of, you know, in the public and that sphere to, you know, and it could be working with, you could say it that way, you could say hold it, hold them to account, but to really, you know, engage with the agencies, with the county to so that we can kind of help shape where we go. First of all, when we first went into emergency mode, my son and my daughter was at the Napili Park 
already setting up things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, all these other hubs all of a sudden just came out of nowhere. Because we all know, especially Komohana, this whole site, the county and the state ain't too fast yeah. of anything that they do. Even when we got involved, all of a sudden I felt myself being driven into kind of a county state affairs kind of thing. Yeah, and that scares a lot of the family because the family don't want to be subjected. You know, a lot of them come over here and says, well, I don't like being in the system, you know, kind of thing. So I think, you know, for us, we remind people when they come over here, we own code of conduct, we're a nonprofit. We're not affiliated to any government entity. Because of that comfort zone, eh? mm -hmm. a, a lot of families just don't trust the system. Especially today in what we call the capital of tourism. Yeah, so people get, get reservations. A lot of family get reservations because this was Kohabai Paiano once upon a time. It was the capital of the kingdom. So a lot of kuponas still stuck in that mode on how, you know, if anything, Ohana gonna take your Ohana. That's automatic. Yeah. And anytime you get the government like intervene inside there, we put up the arms, we put up the fence. Because we don't like being subjected, especially when they come, they say, you know, we get this grant you guys should go for, they're like 200000 maybe we can help you guys out over here. And I'm like, if you guys get that much money, then how come you guys not contributing to the people that, that's displaced? Now all of a sudden, you know, FEMA can come in with the push from the county and the state to buy out all these hotels and put all the families inside here, yeah? They can do that. Just so the hotel industries don't start talking and saying we need tourism now. Well, and what Jonathan Scheuer said is, you know, if you have a hotel that's got 400 or 500 units, somebody at, you know, the state maybe could purchase that. It could be solved in one transaction. They did it in Kauai for two years. Yeah. They would put people up in Kauai. One transaction, you know, you have, then you have these units that people can stay in some. You know, it's interesting because we are so used to thinking of this sort of just bureaucratic model is not serving the most. I, I'm learning a lot just by taking a stand that even in the government, you get people that really care mm -hmm. and look up to people that yeah. just going to do it. And right in this tent, I met Sylvia Luke, Jill Takuda, um, a lot of the important dignitarians affiliated to the Corps of Engineers, EPA, uh, FEMA, you know, the District 9 big guy, uh, what do you name, Bob Fenton, commander-in-chief of the U.S. Uh, Coast Guard, and they come into me, and I'm like, how can I help you? About <laughs> <laughs> a bottle of water? <laughs> I tell everybody, I'm just a janitor, somebody else driving the car. <laughs> But, you know, because of a lot of the things that we've gone through and all that in the past, I guess that's where... Yeah. Nah, I could. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this to Mokoula. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I'm gonna put it... Every morning I go visit Mokoula. Yeah, we wanted love to hear about Mukula. We've talked a little bit about it on our show, and you, the kupuna, who knows probably the most here. So tell us, for those who, you know, we have listeners from all over the world, and of course many local, for those who don't know anything, you know, tell us. It's, it's a passion of ours, my whole family, because before we moved back, repatriated back to Maui, um, we studied up on everything about Mokoula because it was part of our legacy, mm -hmm. part of our genealogy. And, um, you know, I knew Akoni Akana for years. 
yeah, helping him get situated in what he was doing. Been heavily involved in not just the restoration, but my center in Aikane Maui was right across the street from Mokola. So when we got involved with the Huio Ba'akaulua, the Kanua Association, it kind of drew me even way more closer and closer to uh, Mokoula than, you know, seeing a lot of the executive directors one at a time. I thought Kony was Shirley, after Shirley was Blossom Fetera, then all of a sudden they just gave it up. They couldn't do it anymore. The Corps of Engineers got involved saying we're going to dig a big hole, we're going to turn it into a bird sanctuary, and that was it. Me and my wife and <coughs> a lot of our families were strong advocates to tell the Corps of Engineers, we don't want that. Get out. We don't like you guys' plan because it's not going to do anything to benefit the, the identity and character of the place because it was an island in the middle of the fish pond. Right. Right? It was bigger than that. You know, it was about bringing that equestrian system back, bringing back the wetlands and the canal in front of my building dried up because of a, a well that they were pumping across the street you know that's one of the things that i reminded the state when they came saying that now we have a, a good opportunity to look at everything within the town especially within that national historic registered corridor mm-hmm. yeah i told don and a lot of the commissioners we'll go push the reset button push the reset button and put everything back to its natural state right across from there the fish pond all of a sudden came back now you get water underneath one parking structure yeah that everybody came they wanted to take pictures don took pictures and i've been telling them the muli bay is right here it's right there yeah Coming we back. bring this back you know mm-hmm. may the glory return to this place the fire was a good lesson for a lot of us even in the hierarchies of science only tells you that the car system that comes from Mauka percolates right on the bottom and that's why they call wainee creeping water it's right under us and people never saw that not until after the fire yeah so it's evident we have a chance to bring back these systems within in area that basically people saw was only meant for commercial enterprise right but it's bigger than that now you get kalua ehu which was on fish pond where kawi keoli wrote the first constitution naming it the constitution of kalua ehu the water came back so that's one important area where we should really focus on because it's related to mokoula yeah the mo'o in that area when they talk about the mo'o moving from one area to the next to the next that's the legacy of our ohana that's whipping its tail and going into these different directions to make sure that kalua ehu was the pu'ohonua for the minnows so the minnows could grow into bigger fish so we can release them into the wild that was kawi keoli's idea and why he named it the constitution of kalua ehu to protect the minnows from the big fish all that <laughs> which they saw coming yeah no and they saw it coming yeah it's deep it's on so yeah. many levels yeah yeah and and i i talk about that every day in fact we get on pohako in front of the building that we carve one more or looking directly at kalua ehu because that was kind of the moolelo of kihawahine the Kiyo Vahine was 
the matriarch or the caretaker of this pond, which basically was that physical connection, the kinolaos, and all that thing that existed within this corridor. And bringing that back, you know, I think the state really saw what was important because I told them, we had water in the pond. This place wouldn't have burned. That's it. I know. That's it. Yeah. That's it. 100%. But they allowed, they allowed private entities, yeah, because they submitted permits to put in one well, which would dry up our aquifer, would dry up our system. Our canal, gone. All these things. And I get one pending in litigation saying that if we had water in our stream, then I could have saved my building. But thanks to the illegal pumping of these wells that was drawing over a million gallons of water, dried up our town, left us defenseless. But I think the, the beauty of bringing back Mokoula is not just, you know, everybody talk about the sacredness of it. It's the most commonest thing that people should realize that without that pristine resource, we can't do anything. Now that we get them, we can bring the fowls back. We can we can intimately work within the environment to see the oopu come swimming upstream, to see a lot of the the kiole, mm-hmm. the minnows and shrouds of little fish. We only see them when the tide come high. Yeah. yeah. But if that island was back, it's more. It's more than that. And I've been fighting with the county and the state to make sure that we gotta add a little bit more history into this town or else we're gonna lose the National Historic Registry. Uh, yeah. The criteria for the right. National Historic Registry. So if we focus on the wetland, we can focus on a lot more things, a lot more education. Our kids from Punanaleo and Kulakaiopuni, amen. They got it. They understand it. I'm curious, just tied exactly what you're talking about, like within Lahaina, just what do you see, you know, because that whole history, one of the, I guess, another sort of silver lining, it's hard to say that in the context of this fire, but the awareness now of what, how abundant things used to be in Lahaina and just how flourishing and thriving things were. And I'm kind of curious, that vision that you're tired talking about how it could be in the town, just what you would also see around the landscape around us, like, you know, between us and Vaokua, like up the upper mountains, like how that you would see that extending out and this idea of abundance and what you, what we could do here. A lot of people see this devastation as a bad thing. I think we gotta look other than that. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's kind of a good thing because four of the well that the state was talking about, yeah, that the state actually came here to look at these wells and the condition of these wells. So I'm like, those wells only supported commercial. They never support residential areas. So when you're looking at the long-term vision, I kind of asking them, you know what? Shut off those wells, bury them, close them up, plug them. We don't need them anymore because there's no more um, commercial enterprise. Even for like a lot of the people, if they're gonna wanna bring back all these kinds of things which has nothing to do with catering to our community, get rid of it. All this area here, this whole commercial enterprise, all the building that was along the shoreline, they were illegally put in. We didn't have laws back then to talk about the inundation of the shoreline where the state says, oh, you're gonna have to pull your building back because you're in the water. So galleries, restaurants, all these people saying that, oh, I used to go to this, this place like 50 years ago. I'm glad it's still here. That changes everything now. 
And now that the state really got to look at where is the boundaries, mm-hmm. where people can and people cannot. Because our whole shoreline was was just carotid, you're like on carotid artery. And our our ocean resources and all those things that was abundant in Lahaina. Lahaina was known as one fishing village. Mm-hmm. You get the Lahaina yacht club and all they do is like small little boats on the front but you go in there all they do is drink beer all day and that was along the shoreline um i don't know whether or not people can get mad but i'm glad that we ain't gonna have the ability to build any of that again we need to start taking care of more of our resources and i think the general community they want to see something come back there's a plan to put in kind of a monument area mm-hmm. to m- monumentalize the, the life that was lost. Commitment Third School supposed to be relocated. Well, I think this is one aka. I think this is part of, you know, the aha of what we're looking at. That Akua is saying, well, we're going we're gonna to put everything back into place on how it should be. So Commitment Third now got to move. They got to move away from the inundated tidalway zone area, yeah? And I've advocated against the state for a long time. When are we going to move this school? Right. Mm-hmm. Because every time they put in one, one portable for more classrooms, they find EV Kupuna. You know? So if you're looking at long-term visions and goals, let's push the reset button and do it again. Yeah. And let's get a lot of people that really think... I mean, if you come in for Think Commercial, then you're in a third phase. You're in a different spot. <laughs> yeah, lower rung, lower rung down. Just for Clay and I, I'm on Big Island now. I was on this island, Clay's on Oahu, but just seeing the vision you folks is putting forth, you know, is so incredible. And knowing it's coming from the bottom up, you know, at least from my perception, just just hearing folks so involved, so many people at all the meetings, and resurrecting the ideas, you know, that were always there, but maybe folks weren't always listening. It's pretty exciting. So can't hear it to see how it all unfolds. You wouldn't even imagine how many of a lot of our kupuna and my family always trying to tell me, boy, you got to slow down. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell them, you know what, until this whole thing is over, then maybe I'm going to slow down or something's going to take me before that ever happens because it's going to be a long haul. It yeah, is. Yeah, I was just going to say, it it's is. a long it's a hard, game. It's a hard road, no doubt, you know, and it's sort of at the beginning and there's so much. Well, that's actually the thing. On one hand, you have this beautiful model, like a, an idea of like so much attention and I just said this same thing but like of what this place was and so many people bringing that forward to what it could be but in the meantime we're also grappling with this situation that's outside of the scope yeah. of experience for most of us uh, it's there was a plan that the uh, historic society put together in 1961 okay. and that plan was to get Lahaina up to up to par when it came to the National Historic Registry. Mm-hmm. So this area is, Lahaina is supposed to be like Boston, Massachusetts, yeah. with all the whaling and all right. the kinds of things. So there's a history pre-contact into post-contact on how the town was supposed to be envisioned back then, but never came to fusion when all of a sudden they built one hotel on Front Street, which is Lahaina Shores. Once that was built, the whole vision of the National Historic Registry went south. It's like Margaritaville. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And they talk about the Venice of the Pacific. Yeah. 
where waterways was here and there. And when Akoni's vision was talking about when they looked at the overlay of a map in 1884, they saw the lining of a fish pond. That kind of woke up, you know, this innate ability within us to say that, hey, what happened? Why isn't it there anymore? Why all of a sudden now we're dealing with a little Waikiki, yeah? Where everything just basically went total chaotic commercial in that whole town. So where my building was situated was right next to Mokuula. That gave a lot of our community hope because it wasn't just a building where we can educate people, but it was a building where we had living treasures that was there. We had a lot of things from like Sam Kai, his contribution to our oh center. Oh my God, listening to Noe talk about, I was like gutted. We were on a, <laughs> we were on a news program together and she talked before me, thank God, because she was able to give this perspective of the loss and all that. And I just, it was like tearing up, like ready to have it go next after her. But I, I think the beauty of that in despite we losing all that and we don't even have the right to go in yet until the state says we can we can go in. But you know, dealing with that situation and going down there after the fire when the when the water came back, that kinda angered me. Yeah. Because I've been telling the state for the past two months before the fire, somebody gotta come down here and tell that guy don't pump in that well up Malka that he needs to decrease the water mm -hmm. because it's impacting our mm -hmm. resources. They never did not. Only until after the fire, now all of a sudden, it's an urgent need for them to know. Even though, no matter how many times we're telling them this thing is impacting, I don't see the fish coming upstream anymore right in front of my building. The Aoku won't even land there anymore, you know? All these natural kind of things that has happened and occurred, all went south, all went like total chaotic. And I'm hoping that once this cleanup is done, we can really get down to business. Yeah, when people are listening, I mean, we keep talking about the kind of the opportunity where you have the floor, and I just, you know, I'm trying to stay optimistic about them like people still to continue to listen yeah and put and putting that vision forth i mean i think about Kony's video on youtube then when he was talking this is we watched that you know and just uh, you're carrying on that and i mean it's it's pretty pretty amazing you know? I know. It seems like I'm now. Now everybody gone. <laughs> I know that. That's why my family tell me, boy, you're not getting any young. Oh, yeah. yeah. When you started, you never even have white hair. But I, I think you know, if anything, the Ina, the Ina is persistent. But then we gotta help them along the way because there's too much pilikia that's been happening up there in our resources. So now I've been uh, provided an opportunity for some certain amenities by my my litigants and I still stuck. I'm not gonna settle with that because it's not, it, they're not the ones that need to convince me what is beneficial for me, right? So anything, anytime you're stuck in those kind of things or make a determination because the judge is over there waiting and trying to see, okay, are you gonna go with this deal or not? <laughs> And I'm going to stay persistent. Yeah. Because it's, it's not for me to even make any kind of recommendation without the backbone of my family. Mm -hmm. If I do something that's going to jeopardize that, then I got to live with that. So I'm not going to be the one to make those determinations. It's got to be a combined effort. And the decision I make down there, 
is going to you know, affect everything that happens over here. It's so long. It's so long-lasting and long-reaching. Yeah, and you see that sort of, you know, setting that. Yeah, hopefully one day, you know, I'll be able to grow taro in peace. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think, I think that's that's been like the sound bite for a lot of our family for a long time. Not only myself, but Palakikos that live on the bottom, they go through this every year because the water coming directly from the river. Mines get diverted to me. And taking that strong approach against these developers, if we hadn't had a, an interim settlement agreement back then, then I wouldn't have something to kind of put the choker on them. Sure. So now that we're at that point, I just want them to leave us alone already. Yeah. yeah. Let me grow my carlo. Um, they're saying, but we got to pump water up to your property. We don't have the maximum amount of volume to go through the pipe, which can pump water. But then at the same time, that maximum amount of water can fill up their reservoirs too. Yeah. You know, I stuck. Like, I, I need water for my place, but I don't like contribute to them. But the way the natural flow goes, so, I mean, just having to deal with those kind of situations is hard. Now, I think it's going to come. I think it's something going to be good. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, yeah. you're holding that vision in space. And there's so many people who are behind you, and I think so many more people understand, <laughs> like, finally, that, that what's going on, just like you said, what's going up there is connected to what happened here and what has to happen in, in the future. A lot of the people right now in town, they're agitated because, you know, they're worried about mortgage and whether or not the government can seize that. The renters, uh, you know, the governor, hopefully the governor make one decision to stop all that price gouging and, you know, all those kinds of things, getting with the hotel industries to stop them from evicting families out, you know, giving them one more long-term. That's why people agitated. That's why people don't even care about what's happening up Malka. Because they're more, they're more, their needs are like directed. Like they got, they like gotta go in their property. And if it's not the kupuna, and it's the younger generation, the younger ones just want out. They're willing to just sell their little piece of land, go buy someplace else because it traumatized everybody. They all traumatized. They don't know whether or not they can be able to rebuild. And FEMA ain't doing anything. They're just gonna come in and they're gonna clean and they're gonna give you what seven hundred dollars. You know, be even effect affected. You know, that's that's the kind of things our people are thinking about when they come over here. You know, it's good my wife is here because I see people break down. I bet. I can only imagine. They just break down in the front because they're dealing with just every everybody is like foreign. You it's know what so I mean? Hard. Although we lived in the town together. We Live, you know, we had happy moments, and when you see them, it's like no spirit. Yeah. yeah, and they lost everything. I mean, we were just with our friends who are living in in the, one of the hotels right now. They have their three pit balls. They're just, you know, dealing, and it's month it's to month. month to month, and they're and it's like no relief on the mortgage, and you can just see how hard that's just one family. It's a long haul. It's a long haul, but you guys are doing incredible work, holding the vision. And we're going to be here a long time. Yeah, I feel like you're here for the for the duration. <laughs> you, you know, one thing I got to say. Yeah. When, when we came here and we moved from Walgreens, everybody, the state and the county, where'd Kiyomoku go? <laughs> and everybody like, we don't know where he went. <laughs> then all of a sudden, one guy says, 
He's at Sheraton Hotel. Oh, what is he doing over there? He set up hub right on the golf course. I love it. That's so awesome. And everybody was like in the county, like he did what? (laughs) (laughs) But it only showed that this is the area because it's private. Doesn't belong to the county. But the county always has a habit to check up on me and say, how you doing, guy? You need anything? You let me know what you need. You need any more Tyvex? All this came from one donor from Nanakuli. All this resources and everything that we're getting. I just made on Kahea saying that we need the kind PPE Tyvex for all my boys because we get like 52 on the field right now. I don't even know whether or not I can, don't even know whether I even find this. I went to Ace Bottom Out and it's like $21 one Tyvex suit. And at that time I go, I gotta protect my boys. I don't care how much gonna cost these, get it. Then people from all over the state saying, what you need brother? I need respirators, I need gloves, I need Tyvex suits, I need hard hats, I need whatever I can to make sure that my sons are, are good. And all of a sudden it's, it came and it's still coming and I think we're going to be well off, but in order for us to go in there to make sure that we're safe and sound, that's not a guarantee. And I think people need to understand that. People are actually getting involved. Some of them, if anything, I've learned this going through head whopper training from a guy who was impacted by 9-11. And he said, if you go into this, you may as well take 10 years off of your life. I believe it. But if you're efficient in making sure that you're suits is going to be equipped and make sure you take care of you you got to have like you got to be consistent on taking this off and doing that and your respirators and all that and if you're good at that then you maybe you'll be able to live a long life now that's the reality and i don't think a lot of the community know that people that signing up to clean this town maybe related to you that they might not have a chance in the next five to ten years yeah and like for me I'm affected already, so I know. Yeah, my respiratory system is kind of different now. I did my physical and, you know, they they hear a little bit wheezing on the inside because we've been impacted. I was hard-headed when I went in and I would look at the center. I went in there, started moving stuff around just to look for artifacts from Sam's collection. Right. Not realizing that you have this sense of urgency, but now they teach us about arsenic, asbestos, lead different antigens in in the soil and now I'm learning how we need to protect our environment even more so we can grow food grow things that matter it's it's like starting all over again we gotta collie the soil Mm -hmm. yeah yeah we gotta do all these kinds of things to prepare our mala you know monocrop or whatever now I'm learning from scratch all over again this is for sure as we keep saying that the immediate needs are the provisioning is one thing but this cleanup the kind of post-fire environment again we're like out of our depths i think a lot of people so be as safe as possible to be honest i wouldn't give this up for anything knowing that we're contributing to our uh residents you know although you know we have a big population of filipinos yeah mm-hmm. but we cater to them all uh even we get some tourists come buy one a glass of water <laughs> <laughs> You know, so we're going to be here and hopefully things turn out for the best. If not, then we'll be pounding the table and pounding the doors as much as we can. And I have no doubts. Yeah, we have no doubts. Yeah, you know, in closing, I just like to say that the kind, we got to be patient. Too much aggravation, too much things going on. And I pray that, you know, everybody in our community 
uh, everlasting um, aloha. And we shall overcome this. <laughs> <laughs> Amen, for sure. Mahalo, nui loa. Kiamoku, that was a wonderful way to close, really. You're doing the hard work, you and your team, your, all the folks out here, really at all the hubs around, just driving around. I look at that and just, it sounds cliche, but it, it, but it is such an inspiration. You know, yeah, people keep you. saying it, it is really incredible to see. Thank you. Well, that's my waini over there. I tell everybody, I mean, I wear a pants in this family, but she get the belt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks so much for sharing. <laughs> Thank you.